In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart App is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh. That is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, as it's known here in the U.S., is a humanitarian aid organization that provides medical help to war-torn areas and developing countries facing epidemics. It's been in the news lately because of a U.S.-led airstrike last fall that destroyed an MSF-run hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, killing over 40 people. My guest today is Joanne Liu, the international president of MSF since 2013. Founded by doctors and journalists in 1971, MSF differs from the Red Cross in that they speak frankly about the injustices they witness in the areas they serve. That's what MSF has brought, is this medical act with the fact that we speak out on what we witness. Uh, How would you describe the mechanism of how the organization works, for example, where you go, where you don't go? I mean, I'm assuming there's places you don't go because you don't feel safe there. You can't be guaranteed safety. Obviously, in recent months, you went places where you thought you were safe and you weren't. So what's the decision-making process about where you go and why? Well, in, in terms of our basic mandate, it's to bring medical humanitarian aid to population in distress, either secondary to man-made disaster, which could be conflict, armed conflict most of the time, or natural disaster. And so we end up working from war zones like South Sudan, the Central African Republic, or in the Middle East right now in Syria and Yemen, to places where there's an earthquake like we've seen in Haiti or in response to an epidemic like we are seeing with measles in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So this is the range of where we act. And you mobilize predominantly local forces in terms of the medical community in a certain area, or you bring in outside medical assistance, or both? So we do both. And today, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, represent a workforce of about 30 to 35,000 people overall, national and international. And the ratio is for each international, we have about 10 national workers. We work in about 70 countries, and we have an income budget of $1.3 billion. So in a country, nine out of 10 people are local, are are indigenous, if you will. Now, 
When you mentioned that you have 30 to 35,000 medical professionals worldwide at any given time, they are people who work in the medical community who come and volunteer for you. They have other jobs, correct? They're not full-time staff of... The national staff are often full-time staff. Right. Sometimes you, you, you do that for a few years as a full-time, and then after that you just go back to your professional life. You grew up in Canada. Yes. In Quebec. Yes. And when you were going to medical school, was this something you considered an option? Did you think about this kind of relief work? Well, actually, I'm, I'm one of those very non-original people who, uh, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. So this is something that, that I started when I was a teenager at around about 13, 14 years old. And, and in my quest for meaning in life, I've read several books. I think like any other teenager, we all read Zen in the Art of Motorcycle and then Catch Siddhartha. Yeah. And I read one book that was called Et la paix dans le monde and, and the peace in the world. And it was basically uh, a testimony of a physician who worked overseas with MSF. And I remember reading it and just said, wow, this is so cool. And I just said, this is what I would like to do. But sometimes, you know, you're a teenager and you make those kind of, of statements for yourself, but it, it takes a while to materialize. But I'm someone who always deeply believes in, in community life and, and working for the common public good. So I ended up working and doing international cooperation relief work when I was 18 years old in Africa. And when I came back, I said, this is it. I'm going to go into medicine. I'm going to go and work in the developing world. And that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do that with Doctors Without Borders. You went to McGill yes. in Canada and then came down to New York and you were trained in uh, Yeah, I went and did my PEDS ER at uh, NYU. Right. And w- at that time, were you only going to school or were you taking off, so to speak, and doing some of this relief work while you were in school? So during my training, I ended up doing what we call elective, medical elective overseas. So I ended up going in different places. Uh, For example? I went to Haiti. I went to Kenya. I went to Chad. And I ended up as well working up north because I always told myself that if I was willing to go in the middle of nowhere in a war, I should be able to go in places where they don't have enough doctor in my country. So I always, until recently, I always did some work uh, up north in Canada. What was the first spot you went to where you did either disaster-related or war-related medical relief work? Right after my first year of pre-med, I really wanted to get exposure. So I went around and begged to go somewhere. And I've told people, I'm going to do whatever. You know, clean the floor. I just want to go overseas. What, 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 no, but why do you think that is? What was it in you? Do you understand yourself why you wanted to go do that? I I think that um, being the daughter of a migrant has something to play about it. I, I'm awfully grateful for everything I've gotten in life and the fact that I got access to education. And somehow, I guess I always wanted to give back and I wanted to do something meaningful. I'm someone of action. I'm a bit, some people say I'm a bit hyperactive. So that was a fit for me. Your parents emigrated from China. Yes. And they were in the restaurant business. Yes. Do you have siblings as well? Yeah. Are they, they, they all professional people as well? They're professional, but none is in the medical field. None in the medical yeah. field. You're the one doctor in the family. Yeah. 
And so what, so what was the first place you went? After pre-med, I went for, for three months in Chad during the war. Right. It was wartime between Libya and Chad. Right. And I worked in uh, what we call a dispensary and, and did primary health care. But we were doing deliveries. And I remember during those three months, I ended up doing 50 deliveries. The reality is when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't know what I was doing, really, when I, once I finished my training. But that's what I wanted to do. And you were there for three months? Yeah. And when you left, were you spent, were you upset, or were you energized and you wanted more? See, more energized. I, I, I just said, this is exactly what I want to do, but I want to do it with, I want to be skilled to do that. So you and, had to go back and finish your training? Yeah. Was there ever a time you did this where you said to yourself, it's too much for me, I, I don't think I can handle this? No, they've been tough moments, and it's not all rosy. I think it's when you try to work and you feel yourself so much in danger. And then you are as well thinking that you are putting other people in danger. And that's what happened to me when I was in Chechnya. We were under attack on a regular basis. That's one thing. But the threat of being abducted was so huge back then. And we knew that if something were ever to happen to the staff, the MSF staff, then we would pull out. So... We were praying for not having anything bad happening to us because we knew they were delivering really needed aid. Uh, on the other end, it was so nerve-wracking. A lot of fear. Yeah. It's, and, 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 and I hate that because I think, oh, this is so self-centered. And compared to what all those people are going through, come on, get a grip on yourself. Go through that. So when you were there, what kind of work did you primarily do? MSF was running uh, some clinics. It was a very difficult time because we, we were supporting hospitals that were basically undercover because it was such a difficult environment to work. But you thought that that was at one point more than you could bear? It was tough. It was tough. Like soldiers in war. I mean, you were exposed to some pretty yeah. tough things. And and, and in, in some other places, it's just... It's just and I, I, I don't particularly like to talk about it, but I, because I really do think it's... What we go through is difficult. But the reality, I just go through for a couple of weeks, a couple of months in my life. And you have uh, a chance to leave. And I leave, and I just go back to my life. But I know that Chechen or Congolese people or... Uh, back then, or today, Syrian or Yemen people are going through that, and they cannot go anywhere else. Yeah. So you went back to Montreal, and wh where do you plug in and go back to work? What do you do? You're in an office for for uh, MSF. No, no, no. When 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 I was doing this 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 really a lot of field right. work, not as international president, I was going back to my work doing ER. I remember when I came back from Darfur. In Sudan, in 2003 and 2004, every single child I saw, I kept telling the parents, this is a really well-fed child. I had more difficulty to adjust back home than to go to the field. Your focus is pediatrics, correct? Yeah, I'm a pediatrician. <clears throat> You're a pediatrician. Every time I see a representation of what is horror to me abroad, I see children suffering. I see children starving. I see children dying. I see children injured. And I was wondering if that became a particular—I don't want to make this whole conversation about suffering and misery, but you seem tough. And were you always tough, or did you have to become tough to do this job? You have to be 
on the toughy side, for sure. And you need to focus on what you can save in terms of life and not focus on your loss. Uh, I'm saying that because I think it was 2012 and there was a big uh, famine in Somalia and people were crossing over the country to come to Kenya, Dadaab camp, and they would walk for weeks. And I remember that in one day, I lost six children. And I work in the tertiary healthcare center in Montreal. We see 80,000 people on a yearly basis and we see six deaths over the year. And so in, in, in only a few hours, I had seen that. And, and I think that this, this is the huge difficulty. It's the confrontation with death. And it was the same thing about Ebola and why Ebola was so difficult at the human level. It's the confrontation on a daily basis with death. We are trained to save lives. And what we did with Ebola is 50% of our patients, we lost them. And I always told myself, whatever I can do to make sure that we cannot repeat history in my very modest capacity is I will try to do it. I think it's completely abnormal that we have somehow found out about a virus in 1976. But despite that, more than 40 years afterwards, we had no treatment, no vaccine, and no rapid diagnostic tools. And that's unacceptable that we had to face that. And I think today, this is the challenge about everything the 21st century has to offer to us. We need to put our act together because we have other threats today that I think we can somehow troubleshoot ahead of time. And this is something about... Well, I think that antibiotic resistance is a big one. It's, you know, we keep, you know, fantasizing about what will be the next bio threat, the next pandemic. It's actually already here. So we're going to basically save our grandparents from their triple bypass, and they're going to die for the pneumonia because we will not get the right antibiotic to save them. When you say the antibiotic resistance we have built up people's tolerance to antibiotics. And now we have, we have nothing left or we're running out of bullets to kill these right. organisms. Right. And this is what Ebola has taught us. is like something may happen in somewhere in a distant world that we don't even know where to put on the map, but it will have rippling effect in your comfortable New York City life. Well, and I mean, you, you went through that with Ebola. When you are going back and forth to these hot spots, if you will, or whatever term you want to use. You're going back and doing all this good work, and you're coming back to Canada to finish your training. What year and what goes into the decision for you to get into the administrative level of MSF? I made the conscious decision. That's that's what I wanted, because I believe that today we need more leadership in terms of, of health issues. But back then, I didn't have a precise idea that I would do that. And then the position uh, opened up, and I ran for it, and I got elected. So, What year was that? It's June 2013. So, so my, actually, my mandate is coming uh, up for term now. And you are eligible to do it again, or you don't get a second term? You need to run for You're going to run? Are you going to run? Most likely, yes. <laughs> I thought we were going to be get your campaign announcement on our show. How exciting. Um <laughs> What 
is around the world, what would you say are the primary causes of the problems that you see? Are they purely political? Is it diet? Is it food? Is it hygiene? Is it cleanliness? What are things you think can happen that will change the situation you've come across in the world? Well, I'm not sure I'm that competent to answer this very complex question. I remember once I was asked, if you had one wish, what would you wish for the world? And I would say, enough water. That's a problem. It's a huge issue. Where you've been, yeah. Because if you don't have enough water, then you don't, you cannot do agriculture, you cannot feed yourself, but as well after that, you cannot clean yourself and you cannot prevent infection. And so I really do think that if you want a thriving society, you need to be fed. So in the work essential. that you did in certain areas of the world, particularly in Africa, uh, where there was drought, where there was persistent drought, were you led to believe by people you work with that climate change was a big part of that? I think it plays a role, and I cannot say to which extent, but we know that it's, it's a game-changer. Before disaster strikes, MSF places doctors as well as water and sanitation experts in high-risk areas. Their website reports that they treated their first patient from Haiti's 2010 earthquake within three minutes. Listen to the Here's the Thing archive, where Dr. Robert Lustig talks about what he would do to solve the world's obesity problem. I would think very strongly about limiting access of sugar beverages to infants and children, like zero. Take a listen at heresthething.org. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash
This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guest today is Joanne Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, the international aid organization that provides medical relief to countries in need. In 2011, unable to secure permission to provide care for undocumented migrants, MSF pulled out of Thailand. They had been there for 35 years. We don't like to think of ourselves as being a permanent presence because it's need basis. But the reality, there are some conflicts that have been ongoing for decades. But if we look at our portfolio of countries where we are, it's basically a third of where we work, it's in conflict area. About a third of it is in post-conflict area. And, and about a third, it's, 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 it's roughly in, in what I call stable environment, where we work more in terms of either access to healthcare or for epidemics or for pandemic like HIV. And so the reality is, it's context like Democratic Republic of Congo. We've been there for decades. Uh, South Sudan, I was visiting it this fall. We've been there since 1983 because we haven't found a political solution to what happened. We wish we could leave, but every year there's more needs so uh, or there's sustained needs. Where you talk about AIDS, which society has been attempting to deal with the AIDS epidemic for uh, 35 years now, more than 35 years. What needs to change for AIDS to turn around? No, I think there is, uh, there's been a deceleration in in few areas. But the reality is what we're facing is people have forgotten about, about it. It's, it's, there was a full generation who were really aware about AIDS and how it was transmitted. And and now there's the new generation didn't go through the 80s and 90s, so safe sex is not as much mm. of an imperative as what it was in our generation. It's someone else's problem. Yes. So that's interesting because the fastest growing population that is getting infected are, are young adults nowadays. Where? So uh, I'm talking about, I know the figures for, for example, for Canada, but we know that, that it's the young. In the developed world. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just because that new generation didn't right. go through. Sure. For us, you know, the real issue for AIDS right now, it's it's about making sure that that is going to stay as a priority. A disease has been in the landscape for such a long time to keep the imperative to continue to find the right tools and treatment. So yeah. we're still looking, for example, for combined therapy in syrup for children that is palatable after so many years. Still, we're fighting for that. Who's doing that work? Well, we are somehow MSF doing it through our research and development. Developing your own drugs. We have actually have helped the creation of what we call uh, Drug for Neglected Disease Initiative. And what they do is they develop combined therapy of already existing drugs or develop new drugs uh, for neglected disease. And so we have asked them to look into combined therapy for children formula for AIDS. Um. I'm assuming you don't do any work in the United States, or do you? MSF isn't in the United States. No, we have looked into it. One of the things that we've been on a regular basis questioning ourselves is about Chagas disease. And because of the the immigration 
pattern here. There's a lot of people from South America that have this disease. With And what them. does it describe the disease? It's a disease that basically has no huge effect when you get infected initially, but down the road, you've got a heart failure. It's through a, a type of mosquitoes. But, oh, um, and it's, it's the family of, of, of the parasite. It's in the same family of the sleeping sickness. It's, it's, it has, it has like similarities. Tell me, in the time that we have left, um, where were you when you heard about Kunduz? Where, where were you at the time that that attack occurred? I was in a plane, and I, I actually I was just landing, and I was coming back from from South Sudan, and and basically I I I got the message through email because people couldn't reach to me. I was in a plane and all that. So, but I've heard that our hospital has been attacked, and we didn't know that number of casualty and so uh, I, th I think for for the audience I think we, we we have to be clear that Kunduz was a tragic unprecedented event for MSF Doctors Without Borders organization in 44 years of existence we never had such a big loss in terms of patient and staff in one attack Kunduz, for me, and I think for many of my colleagues, there's going to be a pre-Kunduz and a post-Kunduz. And I know Kunduz fairly well because I was there during the winter of 2015. I actually visited our project, and because there was some weather issue, I ended up staying there for almost 10 days. So I ended up rounding patients, getting to know our staff. And I remember distinctly about Kunduz, how impressed I was and, and how I thought Kunduz was so special. And I remember my words when I came back. I said, Kunduz is the gem of the Northeast Afghanistan. We have managed to create a medical humanitarian neutral space where everybody from both sides think that it's safe to come and be cared for And they know they're going to get high level of care. And both sides were coming. Yes, both sides were coming. And it was not this little bush hospital. It was existing since 2011. We had 100 beds. We scaled up our ICU to eight beds. It was bed occupancy of more than 90%, 100% most of the time. And people were walking days to come and be care in our trauma center because they knew It was one of the good places to be cared for. And so I remember because it was so striking, we managed to create this atmosphere where we have the surgeon, the intensivist, the physiotherapist, the mental health together every day doing rounds together and rounding the 100 patients together. We managed to do that. We had as well um, digital x-ray. I remember in the morning, we would review all the admission of the night before. It was really an impressive center. And for some reason, I remember that I thought it was so special that I just said, I don't know how long it's going to last. And I've been with MSF for almost 20 years now, and I've seen so many trauma centers. That one was special. Who had built the facility? Someone had built it and you occupied it or MSF had no, built, we built it? it. MSF built it. built it. There was only like a sort of a central building, but we had to redo the roof and everything and make it a hospital, basically. Uh, 
And uh, that's what we did in 2011, after a few years of negotiation with both parties and the local authorities. The Afghans and the Americans? No, back then was the... The, the two the, tribes there. Exactly. Right. And when you would have these people come to the facility, both sides, as you say, would you separate them into different... Not necessarily, and that's interesting. that's interesting you ask yeah. this question because I asked the same question when I went there because I thought yeah. it was so peculiar. And no, no, people were... Patience. Yeah, people were patient. And that's what we keep saying, you know, a combatant is a patient. Now, how many staff members were in the building at the time of the attack? Well, about 100. And how many survived? Well, we, we lost 14 of them. So 14 died. Yeah. And how many of the patients died? And then, you said roughly around 100 patients. We, 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 had, uh, we had 42, so that's the math, of, of 42 minus 14. So that's basically it. So it's 26, 28. Mm-hmm. There have obviously been discussions and there have been calls for an independent investigation as to what happened. And uh, what is your view on that now? And what do you think is likely to happen or not happen? Our take on this is that I think it's difficult to be the perpetrators and the judge at the same time and being completely impartial uh, about about the findings. We don't have access to the investigation, the American investigation. We have access to the briefing that, that got released of a few thousand words of a 300-pages report. And we have still a lot of questions. And basically, what I want to know is what has led to that and making sure that history will not repeat itself. And what I'd like to compare it to, it's to medical error. I'm a physician. Medical errors happen in my hospital. And we all know that the parties involved never do the investigation. And the goal of this is to make sure that we'll do and create change that will ensure that we'll not repeat the same type of mistake. And you want the United States military to do the mortality and morbidity study on this, and they're not going to? No, they've done the investigation, but it's investigation, I, I would say, with respect to the procedure and all that. It's not against international humanitarian law. But we operate in those very difficult environments Because as a medical humanitarian organization, we are under the assumption that the international humanitarian law are respected. What does it mean? It means that healthcare access is protected and safeguarded in war zones. And it means that population can come to the hospital, but once they are in a hospital, we don't attack a hospital. We don't attack patient, we don't attack caretaker, we don't attack a healthcare worker. And I do believe that when you struggle for your life in the ICU, you should not have to think that you might get a bomb on your head. And I think that we have that shared humanity. I think everybody can understand that. If you bring your six-month-old child in NYU because he's sick, you don't want to have to care to just say, am I going to get a bomb in my head? That's, it's just a basic thing. And what is the current position of the United States government as to what happened? The date of the attack was when again? 
October 3rd. Right, so it was not that long ago. And in the ensuing weeks, did they not say that they suspected that there were terrorists inside that group? Or was it? did they say it was completely an accident? Or did they admit that they deliberately attacked that facility because there were targets inside that building? No, their investigation is saying that there were errors, errors at different level, human level, technical level, procedural level. And we hear that. We do grant the fact that the U.S. has taken responsibility for what happened. And, and I think this is something that we have to acknowledge as an organization because you have to understand that we're very upset. And, and, and it's, it's one thing. In, in, in addition to our mourning, we are upset and we have anger. That being said, is I just want to make sure that it won't happen again. So how can I make sure of that? Has the government indicated that they're willing to work with you? Yeah, to establish yeah, no. protocols that it won't happen again. So we, this is this is what we are right now into uh, into a dialogue a with dialogue them. A dialogue with them. Does it proceeding to your satisfaction? I think we had our moment, tense moment, and I think right after the and and again, I think there was a lot of emotion in that. But I think now we are reestablishing good channel of communication. What's the status of the facility in Kunduz now? Completely closed down. It's closed. Finished. Will it reopen? Or is it smashed to pieces? Well, the thing is, it was a really precise attack. And so it's the main building that's been attacked. And so that building, I always say, it's been burned to the bone. And I'm saying that because I've seen it with my eyes. I've seen it before in February and March 2015. And I've seen it again when I went for the commemoration day 40 days after uh, the attack. And I went through a lot of difficult things since I'm my position, but I think it was one of the toughest ones. Because many of our staff have survived, but they've been injured. And when I was there, I met with all our injured staff. And I met as well with all the families of our staff who have died. And I sat and I listened to them. And I would always, always remember one of my staff, one of our emergency nurse, who got one of his arm amputated during the attack. Just look at me and just said, you have told us over and over again that Kunduz Trauma Center was a safe place. We believed you. And then he looked at me. He wiped tears on his right cheek with his right arm. And he just said, did you know that we would get bombed? And I looked at him. And I just said, you have so much the right to ask the question. And the only answer I can tell you is, until October 3rd, I thought that Kunduz Trauma Center was a safe place. And what we are fighting today, we're fighting for that. We're fighting to safeguard and maintain that medical humanitarian neutral space in war zones. And for MSF, the stakes are so high because that's some of our core aid that we gave. But as well, what we realize nowadays in conflict area like Yemen, Syria, South Sudan, Central African Republic, there's very few 
hands-on actors. And if we change the rule of the game of protecting neutral medical space, it's going to be total chaos. I really do think that it's part of our shared humanity to safeguard that. I still believe that wars have rules. In 1999, Médecins Sans Frontières won the Nobel Peace Prize. John Orbinski, MSF's president at the time, said the following in his acceptance speech. Silence has long been confused with neutrality and has been presented as a necessary condition for humanitarian action. From its beginning, MSF was created in opposition to this assumption. We are not sure that words can always save lives, but we know that silence can certainly kill. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. From self-help books to meditation, we work hard to find peace of mind. Xfinity Home helps you rest easy with a total home security solution. Installed by experts and powered by secure and reliable Xfinity Wi-Fi, you'll get 24-7 professional monitoring with fast response times and real-time alerts, like when doors and windows are opened. Rest easier with Xfinity Home. Learn more at Xfinity.com slash home security. Restrictions apply. Residential customers only. Requires compatible high-speed internet. Professional installation required. From iHeartRadio, The Don, the definitive 24-episode podcast series on the producer of Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, and Top Gun, the maverick, Don Simpson. Back in the 1980s, Don's behavior wasn't just tolerated, it was encouraged. The film industry gave Don a long leash for his high-class call girls, his alliance with the Vatican-connected Italian mob, the private eye that cleaned up his car crashes and illicit firearm schemes. The Dr. Feelgoods on Retainer, the expense accounts for exotic cars and private jets and ski party orgies in Aspen. Don's black market ties were an open secret inside Hollywood, and it was Don's black market connections that led to his tragic death. Season one takes you into the circumstances surrounding Don's tragic death and sheds light on the unsavory characters that may have been complicit. Listen to The Dawn on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.